Hi, I'm Jeff Ebert, and welcome to my podcast, Gospel Wabi Sabi, God's good news for imperfect people like you and me. This is going to be season one, episode 28 on the Good Shepherd. We're going to be looking at the Gospel of John, chapter 10, great verses from 11 through 21, if you want to go ahead and turn there. Just want to remind you that next Sunday night, the 15th, is going to be uh, Wabi Sabi Sunday. For those of you who are supporters of the podcast, uh, we're going to have a Zoom call and we're going to talk about an additional topic related to the Gospel of John. It's going to be on Jesus the Controversialist and how Jesus's way of kind of creating controversy, uh, how does that relate to our witness in society today? So that's going to be next Sunday night uh, at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, and I will send out a uh, Zoom link uh, through the email on Saturday, so please be looking for that. I don't know if this ever happens to you, but it used to happen to me all the time. I'd be in a store or somewhere around town or at a conference, and a person will approach me and say, do you remember me? And I just hate that because usually my answer is no. I have no clue who you are. My memory just isn't that good for names. I mean, some folks are very good at that, and I am just not. I can remember faces pretty well, but names I have to really work at. And here's this person with such an eager look wanting to be recognized. And I'm too polite or embarrassed to say, you know, I have no clue who you are and hurt their feelings. So I'll usually say, well, I recognize your face, but you got to help me out with your name. So here's a big tip. In situations like that, lead with your name. Introduce yourself. Just say, hi, I'm so-and-so. Do you remember me from, and then you fill in the blank. I mean, give a little context for Pete's sake. That will save people like me the embarrassment of not remembering. We're known to others not just by our name, but also by the roles we play. When I was at my church in New Jersey, I would often get introduced as the senior pastor of the New Providence Presbyterian Church, and that's a role I played that I no longer play. So if who I am was wrapped up in that role or that title, that name, then now that I'm retired, I could really feel lost. And that's a real issue for people when they retire from their careers. Who am I now that I'm not employed? But growing up, I was always known as Karen or Kim's little brother. And the only times I ever got bullied had to do with people who wanted to settle a score with my older brother by dumping on me. Oh, the travails of being the youngest child. Now I'm more likely to introduce myself as, hi, I'm Donna's husband, or hi, I'm Jonathan's father. Each of those describe a relationship that helps define who I am. And there are lots of different ways we can introduce ourselves based on our relationships or our roles. Jesus knew how to introduce himself. He wasn't shy about defining his roles or his relationships. And in John chapter 10, Jesus introduces himself again and again uh, again, with another great I am statement. Remember, there are seven I am statements by Jesus in the Gospel of John. We've seen three of these so far. I am the bread of life in chapter six. I am the light of the world in chapter eight. I am the gate earlier here in chapter 10. And throughout the Gospels, Jesus is announcing who he is so that people don't have to wonder. And now in chapter 10, verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd and describes himself in terms of of a very special relationship. Let's read that now, John 10, verses 11 through 21. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 
The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me, just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my father. At these words, the Jews were again divided. Many of them said, he's a demon possessed and, a, and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? This whole chapter is just full of sheep. I mean, sheep are everywhere. And sheep were a regular part of Jesus's Middle Eastern culture. As we talked about in the last episode, if you want the best book on sheep imagery in the Bible, you should pick up a copy of a book called A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23 by Philip Keller. Just a gem of a little book, just full of great insights. I highly recommend it to you. Uh, and also his other great book, A Shepherd Looks at the Good Shepherd and His Sheep, very applicable to, to this one. Also very excellent. I think there's a version where you can actually get both of those books bundled into one larger book, but they're worth it definitely. Uh, Philip Keller, with definitely that's with two L's in Philip, not to be, can be confused with Tim Keller, though his books are great too. I envisioned that maybe there were sheep walking down the street while Jesus was speaking, or maybe they were standing next to a sheep pen. The pattern of Jesus's teaching style was to take something familiar or something from the immediate environment and use it to communicate spiritual truth. And in his teachings, he liked to present contrasts for dramatic effect. The rich man and poor Lazarus, the prodigal son and the elder brother. And here he uses the contrast between the good shepherd and the hired hand. And Jesus is not being very subtle. He's pointing his finger directly at his critics and accusers, the ones who had been hounding him all over the last couple of chapters. Early in this chapter, he had called them thieves and robbers, and now they're characterized as hired hands. Jesus is pointing out the very sad reality that not all sheep are under good shepherds. Who are these hired hands? Well, in ancient Palestine, a hired hand was a transient worker who kind of just floated around on the wind like a dandelion seed. They had no roots in the community. They were not dedicated to the sheep or to the shepherd or to the larger community, just working for an hourly wage, just getting a buck. They're going to pick up some change and then probably move on like tumbleweeds. Sometimes they would be employed as shepherds, but not always very often because the sheep were too important to the owner just to hand them over to just anybody. You know, the owner couldn't afford to lose his sheep. And if the hired man was just looking for a fast buck and was not invested in the welfare of the sheep, the sheep owner needed to know that up front because the owner of the sheep had everything invested in the well-being of the flocks. The health of the flocks wasn't just about his livelihood. It was about his sense of honor in the community. His social standing, I mean, what kind of guy doesn't take care of his sheep? So he's got it all at stake here. A hired hand could care less about the sheep because he's not personally invested. 
So if a wolf attacks the flock, basically he'd say, go for it, wolf. I'm not going to risk my neck. It would be time to just kind of get his resume together and move on down the road. But the good shepherd loves the sheep and is intensely devoted to them. Dr. Timothy Laniak once wrote a magazine article about his travels in Israel and Egypt where he quoted an interview with a modern-day shepherd. I can't begin to pronounce the man's name, but listen to what this modern-day shepherd said about his relationship with his sheep, and I'm quoting the article. I have 2,000 sheep, the biggest flock in the area. I began with one in 1984, and I still know every one of them. They are like family to me. I have five hired shepherds. We keep the flock separated into groups of 500. I am with the flocks every day. Although I have a home in the village, I stay out with them during the summer migration. I must personally supervise the care of the sheep, or I shouldn't be a shepherd. To be a shepherd, it's not a business. It's a thing of the soul." Unquote. I really like that last line. To be a shepherd, it's not a business. It's a thing of the soul. Good shepherds love their sheep. If a wolf shows up and there's a shepherd who's worth anything, the wolf's going to have a fight on his hands. Remember that rod and staff from Psalm 23? The rod was a wooden club with a knot on one end that hung on a loop on the shepherd's belt. It was a wicked weapon that could be thrown or swung at predators. The staff was longer and thinner and had that hooked end for leading and rescuing sheep from crevices or tangled brush. And oftentimes shepherds had a sling for flinging stones. If the sheep started wandering off, the shepherd could shoot a little stone across its path and get it back on track. But the sling was also used against predators. Remember David and Goliath. David was the greatest shepherd of the Old Testament who loved his sheep and protected them with his life and was battle-hardened enough that he was willing to face off against the giant Goliath with the common weapons of a simple shepherd. Now, some shepherds lose their lives in the defense of their sheep. Philip Keller, the author that I mentioned earlier, he himself was a shepherd from Australia, and he traveled the world and kind of studied the way different countries uh, handled their sheep. And he writes about visiting a Maasai village in Africa. While he was there, a 10-year-old Maasai boy was guarding his family's sheep when the flock was attacked by a lioness. Single-handedly, the boy tackled the lioness, managed to spear him, but was badly mauled in the battle. He was almost killed defending the sheep. That's a shepherd, devoted, committed, invested in the welfare of the sheep. And Jesus says some spiritual leaders are sadly just hired hands. And it's true today, just as it was in Jesus' time, there are people who are involved in professional religious leadership who do not care about the true spiritual welfare of the sheep. Shepherd is the same word as pastor, and I have to say, I've often been embarrassed by some of my professional colleagues. Now, most pastors, they love the Lord and are doing their very best to shepherd the sheep that have been entrusted to their care. But there's an unfortunate percentage who are simply hired hands. Some are inept. Some are incompetent. Others just chose the wrong profession. Others are emotionally and spiritually not up to the battle or just confused and are kind of using the ministry to try and figure out all their own stuff. Some are just misplaced social activists who are using the church to further their real interests, which is politics and social programming. Being a pastor is just a way to fund that advocacy. And you see this a lot in the East Coast, particularly in big cities where dying congregations 
may often have big endowments, and the pasture can just kind of feed off of that endowment until it finally runs dry. But in terms of pasturing their flock, they're really just taking up space as proclaimers of the gospel, and their churches continue to die off. They're content kind of just to get their paycheck, not trying to reach the community for Christ at all. No challenge to their flock, no leadership. It's just a job. There's something about church where we tolerate mediocrity like few other professions. And I've seen pastors where it really just really does border on sort of clergy malpractice. They're so bad. And I feel great sadness for the people who are in those congregations. And God cares about that too. God gave some of his sharpest criticism to bad shepherds, the corrupt spiritual leaders of ancient Israel particularly. Listen to this passage from the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 34. I'm going to read the whole thing. It's verses 1 through 12. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel who only take care of yourselves. Should not the shepherd take care of the flock? You eat the curds and clothe yourselves with the wool and you slaughter the choice animals, but you do not care, take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched, no one looked for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord as surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd and so has been plundered and has become food for all the wild animals, and because my shepherds do not search for my flock but care for themselves rather than for my flock, therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths, and it will no longer be food for them. For this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. That is just such a powerful passage and such a word of warning to false shepherds and inept shepherds. Uh, if you're ever in my office in uh, when I was in New Providence, I had a modern art print on my wall that was a rendering of this verse, particularly verse 12. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. It kind of moved from dark shadows at the bottom up towards light at the top. And I'm going to actually include it in this week's uh, sermon notes, those that I send out to my uh, to the supporters. You'll see a copy of the picture that was on my wall and also kind of a, just a modern uh, slide that uses this verse. And kind of if you look at one and the other, you'll get the idea of what the uh, modern art piece is supposed to say. So look for that in your, ma your email if you're one of my supporters this week. Well, shepherds are held to a high standard here. And Jesus is the one who fulfills all that we just heard in that Ezekiel passage. And he is reflecting on the importance of, his, of being a shepherd of God's people. Jesus is the model of what a shepherd, a pastor, should be. And in that regard, 
anyone in spiritual leadership, whether an ordained pastor or elder or deacon or part of the ministry staff or a volunteer, anyone in a leadership position has to sense the enormous responsibility of caring for the needs of the flock, the people of Christ's church. And that means, first and foremost, that always have that personal consecration to Christ. So how does Jesus describe the role of the shepherd? How does he fulfill the role of the good shepherd? Good means excellent here, the best, the very, veryest, if you could. It's actually the same word that was used to describe the fine wine Jesus made back in John chapter 2. Remember after tasting the wine that Jesus supplied that was, first of all, just foot washing water? The MC of the banquet calls the bridegroom aside and says, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. That's the word, same word here, the good shepherd, the very best, the very best that there is. That's the kind of shepherd Jesus is. And Jesus says there are two important characteristics of this good shepherd. First, the good shepherd knows his sheep. Jesus said in verse 14, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. He knows them just as the father knows him. He knows all about them. The shepherd knows each one individually and all the various personality quirks in all the various sheep. Some sheep are friendly. They come running to get something to eat. Some are aloof, harder to reach. Some are happy, some not. There's always a few grouchy sheep who like to butt into each other. They are, they are not all the same. And so there's a wide variety in the flock. And the good news, the wabi-sabi news, is that God knows you thoroughly. Every habit, every trait, every characteristic, all your idiosyncrasies, all your struggles, all your emotions, your angers, disappointments, hostilities, you name it. He knows you through and through. Think of Psalm 139, verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. The great shepherd, the good shepherd, he knows you this day. And that is actually a startling thought. He knows us as we're listening to this podcast. I, I don't know your thoughts, but God does. I don't know your struggles, but God does. To be so well known, to be so completely unmasked before him. It's a little unnerving, quite frankly. To be so fully known by the shepherd might leave us with a combination of feelings, sort of like encouragement and maybe embarrassment, strength and maybe a little bit of shame. But the encouraging part should overbalance the other because <coughs> he knows us and he loves us. He knows the, who, who we're hurting. He knows our past with all our failures. That kind of intimacy goes against kind of the anonymous nature of our urbanized world where people can, can be and kind of feel unknown in a city of millions. People can be surrounded by relationships that lack depth, that lack honesty or sincerity, surrounded by phonies, riddled with skeptics, you know, crippled by cynics. People run from real intimacy. The shepherd, however, knows our present with all our frustrations. He knows our motives and even all our doubts. All the disciples doubted at one point or another. It's an amazing thing that to, to doubting people, Jesus entrusted his great message. And the shepherd, 
He knows our future with all our fears. He knows our hopes, our highs, and our lows. He knows us and loves us. What if I could read your thoughts? What if I were able to record all your thoughts over the last year and write them out on poster board and then read them out loud in public? How long would you stay around for that show? I think most of us wouldn't want our deepest or darkest thoughts to be made public, to be completely known with nothing hidden, so vulnerable and open. It's almost too much for us, humanly speaking. But God knows. He knows us intimately, and he is great at forgiving and forgetting. Friends, there is no heavenly scroll with all your misdeeds written on it. No judgment scroll that will catalog all our sins and shortcomings. We won't face a terrible litany of all our sins when we stand before God's throne. Scripture tells us that as far as east is from the west, so far does he remove our sins from us. Because of the great shepherd, God has erased all our sins from his memory. He loves us, and at the judgment seat, all we will hear is when he calls us by name. We're his lambs, and Jesus is our good shepherd. He knows us in our darkness, despair, in our deception, our joys and victories, potentials and dreams. Do you see yourself as someone who is known by God in that pervasive and loving way? I hope so. Second characteristic of the good shepherd, Jesus says in verse 15, I lay down my life for my sheep. He lays down his life. That is a central teaching of our faith, Jesus' sacrificial death. John has been laying this truth out throughout the gospel from the statements of John the Baptist in chapter 1, where he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, to the sacrificial Lamb of their Passover celebrations, right from the beginning of Jesus' public ministry all the way to the end, the cross casts a shadow over every step Jesus took. And he knew it. Jesus' death was not a surprise. Jesus had foreknowledge of it. He spoke of it repeatedly. Like in Mark chapter 9, starting with verse 31, he, Jesus sets his sights on Jerusalem. He tells his disciples very plainly that he's going to be killed. And you remember, Peter tries to stop him. Peter then received Jesus' strongest rebuke. He said, get behind me, what? Satan. That's pretty tough coming out of the mouth of Jesus. Because Jesus knew his death was essential. It was God's purpose that he came to fulfill. Jesus' death was not forced on him. The good shepherd on Good Friday voluntarily laid down his life. In this verse, Jesus says, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. Wow. Just think of the strength of that statement. God's greatest power is displayed in sacrifice. God's greatest power is displayed in sacrifice. God's life poured out. Jesus said it was, for this purpose I have come. He could have called down 10,000 angels if he'd wanted to be rescued from the cross. We'll see that later in John when he's arrested by Roman soldiers in the Garden of Gethsemane. No, Jesus was like a lamb that's led to the slaughter. Jesus went willingly to the cross for our salvation. That was his essential purpose. And that's why his death should not be blamed on any one group. You know, sadly, throughout the centuries, there have been times when the Christian church or groups of Christians have been guilty of anti-Semitism, where sadly it was thought that it was somehow pleasing to God to take revenge on Jews for the death of Jesus. And nothing is more reprehensible than that. Nothing is more reprehensible than that. And anyone who suggests such a thing does not have the mind of Christ. First of all, because there's no doubt that Jesus was executed by the Romans. The, they were the only ones who had the authority 
to do so, and that's clearly taught in Scripture. There's no doubt that some of the Jewish leaders of his day were involved in the plot to have him killed. We've seen that already in the Gospel of John several times, but that does not mean that there is any guilt on all Jewish people. There is no transfer of guilt to the Jewish people. Nowhere is it taught in Scripture. People who think that way are just unbalanced and are already uh, kind of predisposed to irrational hatreds, I think. Jesus was Jewish. He loved the Jewish people. Christianity began as a Jewish expression of faith. All his first followers were Jewish, who never intended to start any kind of separate religion. The whole New Testament just burns with this love for the Jewish people and Israel. The reality is that Jesus' message of Messiahship was first and foremost for the Jews, and only then for non-Jewish people. Only then are we invited in those of us who are Gentiles, and we're going to see that in just a second. And that's still true today. Anyway, the last thing about his death was that it was not the end. The resurrection is coming. He has authority to take it up again. We're not there yet in the Gospel of John, but we know the story. The grave did not hold him. Jesus brought victory over death. Things don't end with Good Friday. Easter completes the story, and his tomb is empty. As Jesus finishes this portion of his teaching, he tells us one other thing. He says he has other sheep who must be part of his one flock. There's only one flock, but it has many folds. The flock is the sum total of all God's sheep. The flock is distributed widely into many different folds. He says, I have other sheep who are not of this fold. Remember to whom Jesus was speaking, to the Jewish people, and they were the first recipients of his grace, the first to benefit from his sacrifice. But the common thought of Jesus' day among the Israelites was that God's grace was only for them, that it was an exclusive deal that Gentiles or non-Jewish people, there was no way that they could be included in the providence of God. They believe that Israel only receives God's redemption and it can't really reach anyone else. And Jesus countered that attitude. Jesus definitely concentrated his ministry on the Jews, but he empowered his disciples to go into where? All the world, to all ethnicities, to the Gentiles as well, all peoples everywhere. And we will see that later in the gospel. The great promise of what heaven will look like is in Revelation chapter 5 verses 9 and 10. It goes like this. It says, and they will sing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Did you hear that? All nations, all ethnic groups, all languages, not excluding anyone, no one too good, no one too bad, all welcome within the circle of Jesus' love if they respond to him. So there are many folds, but only one flock. And you know what? That's why it's okay for the Christian church to have so many different denominations. Maybe we don't need quite so many, but people are different. We're never going to have one world church, and that's not really a goal that's worth pursuing. But followers of Christ are one flock, but of different folds. And so within that one flock, we're going to see super liberals and super conservatives. You don't like their politics? Too bad. Is it right to think that if someone is a Democrat or a Republican or a socialist or whatever, is it right to think that it's impossible for them to be a Christian? Of course that's wrong. Christians will be found across all political spectrums. There are many legitimate areas of disagreement. And there's no one political opinion that can void someone else's salvation in Christ. 
I mean, what a pathetic savior Jesus would be if his grace couldn't cover our political opinions. And within local congregations, there are going to be differences. There are going to be disagreements. But let's not demonize each other and somehow exclude others from the grace of Christ. There will be different tastes, different styles of worship, different opinions about church decisions and leadership changes. But let's not form teams within the local church that war against each other. That is just so sad to see, and I think it breaks Christ's heart. Let's not let our petty differences and preferences divide us. The essentials of our faith have to do with the person and work of Christ and how we experience his grace. After that, there's a lot of room to maneuver, and we can agree to disagree on non-essentials. We are one flock with many folds. Let's appreciate the differences at work here, and then praise God for that. So be very careful if you say or think that a person's not a real Christian. You know, it's not your job to be shooting at each other. Our job is to keep to Jesus's greater vision of heaven. Jesus is a good shepherd for all God's sheep, not just some. Jesus is calling all to him. Whether living in tiny mud huts or penthouse apartments or a four-bedroom ranch with an attached garage, whether they worship in impressive cathedrals or tent meeting revivals, there is only one flock and one shepherd. The key for all true believers is simply this. Do you hear his voice? Do you hear the voice of the good shepherd? That's the ultimate criteria. Can you recognize it as God who is calling to you? Do you know it when he invites you into his care? Are you willing to put yourself under his management over your life? Let's respond to his overtures. Let's respond to his voice. Open your life and do what he wishes. Cooperate with his desires, his will, his nature. Jesus spoke about the good shepherd with calm assurance. And you know what? Some of them missed it. They thought he's insane. He provokes a reaction. Just like today, the call of the good shepherd is going to provoke a reaction. But he knows you. He laid down his life for you. Let him shepherd your life this week and always. God bless you. Have a great week.